The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, welcome to Squawkbox. Here are your headlines today. U.S. stocks keep up the rally. The Nasdaq closes at a record high as investors focus on growth stocks. While the S&P 500 settles just off a new peak and the Dow notches its best day since March. Fed Chair Jerome Powell sticks to his script, telling Congress that inflation fears will not drive the central bank to raise rates too soon. The categories where these prices are really going up, you'll see that it's, it tends to be areas that are directly affected by the reopening. That's something that will go through over a period that will then be over, and it should not leave much of a mark on the ongoing inflation process. The EU signs off on Italy's recovery, recovery plan as Prime Minister Mario Draghi looks to disperse 190 billion euros of next-gen funds. Italy is the bloc's largest individual recipient. La giornata di oggi. This is just the beginning. The most important challenge now is the implementation of the Italian National Recovery and Resilience Plan. UK Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab continues his tour of Southeast Asia after a first stop in Vietnam as he looks to foster trans-Pacific trade ties in a post-Brexit era. And London's Wembley Stadium will host more than, wait for it, 60,000 fans for the Euro 2020 semi-finals and final. But the German Chancellor Angela Merkel, well, she remains wary about reopening too fast. I hope that the UEFA will be responsible, and I don't think it would be good if there were full stadiums there. So, very good morning. Lots of burning stories to get our teeth into this morning, but I guess we should check in on Jay Powell's latest testimony just to see how he has placated markets and helped push the Nasdaq to that new record high. The S&P didn't do too badly either. Jay Powell playing down fears that the US could return to a 1970s style surge in inflation, telling lawmakers on Capitol Hill it is, quote, very, very unlikely. Powell cited factors tied to the reopening of the economy, which are driving prices higher as he appeared before a special House panel, but stressed that he expected supply bottlenecks to ease in coming months. Those are things that we would look to to stop going up and ultimately to, to start to decline as these situations resolve themselves. They don't speak to a broadly tight economy into the kind of thing that, that has led to uh, high inflation over time. I will say that these effects have been larger than we expected, and, and they may turn out to be more persistent than, than we've expected. But the, the, the incoming data are, are very much consistent with, with the, the view that these are, these are factors that will wane over time and that inflation will then move down toward, uh, toward our goals. So the impact of that largely has been to put the dollar on the back foot. We know in recent sessions we have seen uh, the dollar pushing higher, but the uh, announcement from Powell just reiterating, it's almost like the last uh, few days 
didn't actually exist. You sort of rub your eyes and you wonder if the market did go into a bit of a funk about the prospect of earlier than expected interest rate hikes. Because here's Powell uh, telling it like it was prior to that last meeting, saying everything is fine. Don't worry about inflation. It is all transitory. No evidence that it is going to be permanent. Consequently, that took some of the momentum out of the dollar here. And I just wanted to point out where the uh, bigger moves were, because we've we've seen um, a decent step on the uh, dollar uh, yen, obviously the dollar index indicating that move, but the dollar yen um, showing a, a reasonable, uh, a reasonably sizable uh, move on the back of that. We're 110.77 or thereabouts here. And Treasury yields dip slightly. Investors um, continuing to try and figure out what the shape of the curve should actually look like at the moment. The 10 year currently sitting at one spot. 468. Um, the message from Powell then uh, continues to just ease uh, both the 10-year and the long-end yields, Karen. Jeff, uh, those messages from Jay Powell being on script around transitory price pressures, very much well received by the markets and that reassuring tone you could see unlocking another day of green for the major averages. Uh, what we had in terms of records, though, worth just turning your attention to the Nasdaq, uh, the record close that we saw here for the tech heavy index, 14,253. Uh, it was a little bit of a different tone to the Monday session in a way what played out on Tuesday because Monday was again about this reflation trade. You had the Dow picking up a lot of steam yesterday. Some of that focus did switch to the tech sector. And as you think about the journey towards higher interest rates, we're still talking about a, a time frame out until 2023. And in the meantime, investors still eyeing very strong growth profile too from the sector. So we did trade at a record there, but also for tech stocks as well. And that component very much lifting the S&P 500 half of a percent higher, as you can see, and uh, slightly left behind, but still positive the Dow uh, as it uh, was bolstered again by the central bank speak. And let's take a look at those bangs as investors uh, waited back back into that sector, 1.2% higher for Apple stock. You can see uh, much stronger. Don't forget, there have been a lot of concerns about whether the demand story has been pulled forward for Apple during the pandemic, the use of all those extra devices and the ordering that went on for many consumers as a result. But uh, the, the stock now supported Microsoft down up 1%. Netflix extending its gain. You can see much higher ranges here, 2.3%. And for social media names from Facebook to Twitter, Alphabet, uh, slightly slimmer tone there, just four-tenths of a percent, but it has been one of the better stocks supported. A little bit on that reflation trade, actually, given the big advertising nature of Alphabet, Amazon stock, 1.5% pop, and we've all been talking about this Prime Day event and what it means for the uh, litmus test on consumer behaviour right now. That stock strong. Tesla, uh, slim range there as well for what has been a, a bigger mover in the past versus some of the other big tech names. Uh, a quick look at what's happened on the energy complex too. WTI and Brent. Uh, don't forget, we were talking about WTI Day earlier that is on pace for its best half uh, year of trade since 2009. Again, 73 the handle. We are seeing some very firm numbers here. Brent, 75.27 morning session. Both are trading higher. 
gold prices. Uh, a little bit of lift here too. It's not been a winning trade this year in contrast to what we've had in the first half for energy. It's uh, been one of the potentially one of the worst halves for gold since 2013, but uh, it has caught a little bit of a bit at this stage. Uh, the argument in recent sessions has been, well, if rates are going to go up and this is a non-yielding play, what does that mean for the commodity? But uh, back in favour to an extent this morning. Uh, Bitcoin, oh, we saw some uh, wild rides here around Bitcoin. Was it linked to central bank activity as well, or was it really about what we heard from China early in the week? The verdict seems to be that's what it has been. This tightening of the noose around uh, trading and moving of, of payments to try and purchase and buy and sell a Bitcoin. So the big plunge we had below 30,000 in that volatile trading session yesterday wiped out all, almost all of the gains uh, for the year. The regulatory crackdown, though, has unlocked uh, a little bit of a move to the upside today in response. And so you can see clawing back some of those losses as investors try to judge the price from here. A quick look at the Asian markets. Uh, Australia, the, the red patch on the boards here, modest drop, about half of a percent, still holding above 7,300 points. But uh, bigger gains uh, we are seeing on uh, some of the Chinese markets, in particular Hong Kong. You've got a gain of more than 400 points there, one and a half percent. And just a quick shout out for Japan. Now, it was fascinating to hear the, the thinking from the, the Bank of Japan talking about what could be ahead for policy. They're talking about the massive stimulus that's been deployed by many countries, saying that should speed up the pace of economic recovery in Japan. Uh, also, uh, consumption too, and some of that pent-up savings should be unlocked if households uh, are vaccinated. But that said, uh, the vaccination pace is still one of those wild cards for Japan and what happens with the pace of recovery from here. Steve. Karen, I just had to pinch myself. And unfortunately, in this COVID world, there is a lot to pinch these days. But I've just, just checked a couple of numbers before I get into my reads. And I've done it for a reason. 60%, 153%, and 160%. Now, how many of our viewers know what I'm talking about? Absolutely none. Right. 60% is the Maastricht level on the growth and stability pact level of what the debt to GDP should be uh, from 1990, by the way. Uh, 160% is what it's going to be this year over in Italy. And 153% is what it's going to be if we actually achieve everything we aim from the programmes going through at the moment. 60% the target, 160% the reality, 153% if it all goes well, where we're going to be in three years. That's where we've got to. But despite that, the European Commission has approved Italy's 191 billion euro recovery plan. Um, the largest share of the EU's next generation package. I've actually seen a 209 billion figure somewhere as well. Uh, the focus uh, for the funds will be on transforming Italy's economy to become more sustainable and digitalised. Uh, the plan must now be approved by EU finance ministers next month. Well, the Italian Prime Minister, Mario Draghi, called the approval a day of pride for the country, whilst warning it's an opportunity not to be wasted. This is just the beginning. The most important challenge now is the implementation of the Italian National Recovery and Resilience Plan to ensure that the funds from the first instalment of 24.89 billion euros, money that once used to be the amount of an entire one-year financial budget law of our country, will be well and fully spent. Well has a double meaning for me. It means spent efficiently, effectively and honestly. So the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen uh, hailed the union for, quote, putting its strength and at the service of Italy's recovery. Uh, von der Leyen also expressed her confident with, uh, confidence with the bloc's plans to raise funds. 
We have been going for the first time to the market, um, the capital market, a week ago, and it was very successful because we were able to raise 20 billion euro, euros, and it was seven times oversubscribed. So this shows the confidence of the markets in the next generation EU, and uh, so we are raising the money right now, and if in uh, four weeks the council, and I think so, will approve the plan, then we can disperse the first money. No, no, I hope it works. I really do. I love Italy. I spent a lot of time out there professionally and personally. I really want it to work. But I, I'm going to be churlish here. A day of pride when you've been given a cheque for 200 billion euros is not the same as a day of pride when you've spent that money wisely and achieved what are unbelievably lofty aims. And, and, and we've been through this many, many times with Italy. Don't forget, they've always had one of the highest structural debt to GDPs for decades. And that's building up debt, despite the fact, and there's an excellent article on Politico on this one as well, that the challenge for Mr Draghi is he's got to do this fairly quickly. There's an election in spring 2023. They have to spend the money by 2026 or they have to give it back as well. And what has Italy got to overcome? Well, decades of stagnation. I think that's fair to say. Huge structural reforms have got to be put through as well. Uh, update competition rules. Again, something that previous administrations have failed to do. Rewrite tax laws as well. Modernise the economy and also have a digitised and green economy as well. Uh, this is a monumental task for an economy which has... Well, flattered to deceive, basically, for decades as well. So I, don't get me wrong. I want it to work. I hope it works. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm flashing my Europhile credentials here. But I just see the task is monumental, considering, A, the debt levels we already have in this country, uh, and B, the failures we've seen to date to do some of those challenges. Uh, Jeff and Karen, I don't know if, who wants to come in. Uh, Steve, I think uh, it's fair to say there's a huge weight on Mario Draghi's shoulders here. The solidarity signalling uh, the fact that you've got the European partners all coming together with this huge recovery fund and it's up to, to Mario Draghi to spend the, the lion's share of it and come up with a successful outcome. Uh, so what does it mean in future if this is not a successful project? What does it say about uh, the ability of Europeans to stick together and uh, come up with a plan, a blueprint for the future so there's that issue you know Italy we, we talk about this country from the very outset that was suffering from coronavirus you think about the loss of life there what 127 odd thousand people who died from coronavirus GDP had down 8.9 percent last year uh, this was uh, the worst recession that Italy has suffered since World War II so if you don't have European countries stepping in to help out Italy then you've got to ask what is the point being part of this huge project and the other points that Steve raised I think are, are quite pressing around the timing Mario Draghi is meant to roll out an infrastructure project that and a stimulus spending that is very long life and in many ways can take a long time to execute on, but in a very short period of time. So naturally question, how can that happen? The other big point is we've spoken for many years about the structural challenges in Italy. These things are not sold overnight. And if you think about where the spending is targeted, one of the areas is around education and training. And if you look at some of the numbers, uh, nearly one in four young Italians is not in a job, education or training. Uh, this according to the Jacques Delors Institute, 80% uh, of adults don't have any vocational training. So this is a huge ship to turn around as we talk about educating the population and driving up those productivity levels. The other point, uh, the new economy, the uh, climate change objectives, a lot of companies across Europe are channeling money into that. And uh, I think it's still a very difficult area to extract returns from as we talk about legacy assets where the lion's share of the profits still remain, but trying to pivot towards the future and, and make these sustainable investments that also actually become profitable down the track, Jeff.
Yeah, I think you both made some terrific points about how this is critical for Italy, which we know has been structurally challenged with productivity for generations, and about is it a critical moment for the Eurozone as a whole here, because Italy must demonstrate that it knows what to do with those funds. So let me pivot to two other issues that I think might be very important for our investing audience. One is the function and attitude of the European Central Bank. Mario Draghi, ironically, at the ECB prior to becoming Prime Minister in Italy, always said it is time for monetary policy to take a rest and fiscal policy to pick up the baton. Well, here we have an opportunity for fiscal policy to pick up the baton. Does that mean that the ECB can rest on its laurels? Clearly not at this point, because the ECB and ultimately the German taxpayer are the reason that borrowing rates are as low as they are in the Eurozone, and effectively the German yield acts as that key anchor for France, for Italy, for all those other uh, economies in the Eurozone, that if they had to borrow on their own balance sheets, would obviously have to service their debt at much higher levels. And we don't need to just worry about Italy. I would also suggest that we keep a weathered eye on France as well, if this should untangle, given that their debt to GDP is expected to be somewhere around, I don't know, 116, 117% by 2024. So the other point I would make also is is we also need to look at how this plays in the German election campaigns. Because, as I've mentioned previously, um, a former uh, CDU Chancellor, um, Wolfgang Schäuble, has written a terrific piece on this, an op-ed piece called um, A Pandemic of Debt where he argued that the way to borrow money is not the way that the Commission is doing it, which, of course, means Germany is jointly liable and on the hook for all this borrowings. He would have preferred a method that somehow siloed the responsibility based on countries' needs. Well, that is not happening. If this doesn't go well, it'll be interesting to see how the Conservatives in Germany use this as an opportunity, maybe, to try and drum up further support for their own policies, given that the Germans themselves are hoping to reduce debt to GDP going forward, while maybe France and Italy have no such plan at this stage. Anyway, I know we'll talk a lot about this story um, as we continue to watch how the Italian government uses this fresh disbursement of funds, uh, as well as all the other countries that will be beneficiaries. One other story I just wanted to tell you about that's hitting the wires at the moment. This is just an update on some other uh, news that we have been watching around the consolidation in the German property market. Uh, Venovia confirming the launch of a public takeover offer for Deutsche Wohnen shares here. The uh, uh, Deutsche Wohnen shareholders can tender their shares from today uh, up to the 21st of July of this year. As previously announced, Venovia is offering Deutsche Wohnen shareholders a cash payment of uh, €52 Euros per Deutsche Wohnen shareholder. So, as I say, the offer 
uh, period starts today and is expected to end on the 21st of July here. The group goes on to talk about the cost savings expected to be fully realised by the end of 2024 and uh, do not yet include benefits from the uh, muscle that would come from joint financing activities. Uh, So just to tick the box on that story, confirmation that that tender offer begins at this point. Uh, We've got to take a break. I've talked an awful lot. It's time to hand it over to somebody else. But just to point out, we'll take a good hard look at the energy sector and its transition to greener energy. Uh, A lot of talk about where crude prices are headed given that we now have uh, OPEC and OPEC Plus starting to talk about maybe just releasing the spigot somewhat. And for more on the next steps in Europe's recovery, you can check out the Squawkbox podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Energy and natural resource companies are uniquely suited to help drive the transition to a more sustainable future, according to Bain & Co. Uh, Its first ever global energy and natural resources report maps out how energy firms can defy critics and activist investors and become key to tackling some of the most important issues we face today. But the consultancy says the companies need to get three things right, innovation, impact and economics. Well, let's get to one of the authors of this report. Uh, Pete Parry is uh, Peter Parry, beg by the chairman of Energy and Natural Resources Practice at Bain & Co. Peter, really nice to speak to you today as well. There's a contradiction here, isn't there? And you you pointed out in your notes as well that the fact is these oil companies need oil, they need gas, they need higher prices in order to create the cash flow uh, in order to uh, have these new investments in innovation and green and renewable technology as well. When do we get the pivot where actually they can afford to sell off these assets in order to actually move fully to becoming renewable companies? Yes, good morning and uh, great to join you. That's the critical question, isn't it? How do you strike the balance between doing what we do today and doing what we absolutely need to do tomorrow? Uh, And for the big oil and gas and energy companies uh, around the world, that pivot needs to come faster. It needs to come within the next five years or so, uh, not the next decade. And I think that's the really key element to this tipping point discussion that we're now all embroiled with, uh, that the incumbent players need to move a little bit faster. They need to use those profits, and we see oil at uh, healthy prices today, but we need to use those additional profits to accelerate the change. Uh, but, but but I mean, some of these key assets, I mean, I, I, we've had this question with Bernard Looney on the channel before as well. And you can understand where they're coming from. They have a cash cow. It is a 20 percent stake in Rozhnev. Uh, and yet that same company uh, is having Arctic exploration, for instance, which many of the activists on the environmental front think is abhorrent at the moment as well. So uh, what do they do with these assets? Do they just get rid of them and, and appease the activists or do they say, no, we need this money? It's a very difficult conundrum, though. It's a difficult conundrum, but we need both. We need both the production of energy today in the right way, and I think what we'll 
progressively see is that the more advantaged or the less carbon intensive fuels coming through like natural gas, uh, we'll see that profits being hopefully redirected. We, we've got activists, shareholders, we've got uh, commentators, we've got uh, the, the media all pushing towards that greener investment profile. So it's about using those funds wisely and beginning to decarbonize the asset base we have. And as I say, doing that as fast as possible. So selling off assets to, to other players isn't really the, uh, the play here. It's about making those assets work hard in a decarbonized way and then redirecting the capital to, to those better, longer term, more sustainable assets for the future. Peter, one of the challenges, it seems to me, for, for companies that are not in the energy sector but want to meet ESG commitments is just figuring out how to do that at this point, because there is a cynical suspicion that a lot of the ESG talk at the moment is merely a way for Wall Street institutions to take money out of the pockets of investors and uh, 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 companies. Um, the whole offset uh, area is an absolute minefield with no clear evidence that there's a single audit trail that works effectively on any of these so-called offset projects. And that's right. I mean, right now, there's there's no global mechanism to, to calibrate or regulate th those things. So we are uh, to a great extent, relying on the uh, the capability of the incumbent players in the energy sector to drive that kind of change, to to monitor and act in in the right way, uh, and and to attract the capital. And let, let's let's be honest, the the major energy companies got a lot of work to do uh, to attract that capital. You know, they were thirty percent of the S and P five hundred uh, back in twenty ten. They were around sixteen percent of that S and P five hundred at the end of twenty twenty. So whilst there is a, a huge task in, in operational terms to do, there's a really big task in terms of attracting investment. One of the other problems, it seems to me, is is capacity. Uh, we uh, spoke yesterday to uh, Mr. Staraci over at uh, Enel, who says that if he puts in an order today for a wind turbine, he might have to wait two or three years for actual delivery. Uh, that doesn't sound like a, a useful state of affairs if we're trying to hasten the energy transition. Well, I think it's about getting the right balance as well uh, between the different kinds of transition mechanisms in place. Uh, and as we've all heard, the, the transition from coal toward gas and, and cleaner renewable power generation sources is key. So whilst, yes, there may be some blockage in the, uh, in the supply chain in some critical areas, there's certainly a huge amount that can be done that arguably has an even bigger impact as we switch from coal towards natural gas, as we switch from just uh, crude oil-based fuels to those with a higher proportion of biofeedstock. And we think much more about recycling, uh, the chemical sector and other sectors are pushing hard in that direction too. So I agree, yes, there are going to be some bottlenecks, there are going to be some bubbles as investment flows quickly into some corners of this debate. But there's a wide landscape to play on, and we have to keep that bigger picture in mind. Peter, the conversation around energy transition defined expectations and actually gained momentum as we saw the height of the crisis, a, a plunge in oil prices, a drop in demand uh, because of coronavirus. But what happens now as we talk about recovery and economies naturally require more product and we see the price pick up? How does that conversation change and what does it do to the timeline around transition? 
Well, I think it, it does two things. Uh, first is, is a very positive thing. That tick up in price actually means that we get a short-term boost. We get a short-term boost for the incumbent players, their cash flow and profitability for 2021 certainly should look much, much healthier than it did in 2020. That means they've got more discretionary capital available. Uh, and, and hopefully they, with their, uh, their shareholders, will conclude that the best use of that capital is to reinvest it in the transition. I think the second thing that, that is there as well is that we, we start uh, 2021 in a different mindset, don't we? we we're looking at uh, different expectations. Uh, we're looking at different ambitions. But also that time frame has been pulled forward. So we were talking prior to the, the pandemic about a 10-year transition uh, in terms of setting ourselves up for success. I think now we're talking about five years. I also want to ask you about the future of some of these companies because it feels as though the conversation has changed subtly in recent weeks because we've got so much more coordination at a global level, G7 uh, first up and then potentially G20 down, down the track. We've had conversations around the set about these companies being big global companies. If they get too much investor pushback, they simply pick up and headquarter somewhere else because the demand remains there from many of the emerging markets. But now we have this uh, sense from ministers at G7 that they want to tackle global challenges and it's simply not okay just to move companies around to different jurisdictions if you don't like uh, some of the, the regulation that's being proposed. Do you think we do have that sea change when it comes to climate change and it will be much harder for companies just to reorganise elsewhere? I absolutely agree. I, I think that that sea change is is evident in, at the political level with the, the G7 summit. It's evident in the boardrooms of, of the major oil and gas, uh, the major utility, major chemical, major mining companies around the world. I get the opportunity to, to, to work with those players and, and they really have changed the conversation. I think the real key, though, is not just changing the conversation, but it's setting objectives for the next five years that can really start to to drive that change. And as you say, it's not just in one jurisdiction. We don't have one part of the world moving fast and one part of it moving more slowly. We've got to try and get that momentum uh, across the board. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.